0: creative journey. It's easy to get lost, but don't worry, you'll lift off. Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk. Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. Pizza. Imposter syndrome. What's it all about? I mean, why do so many of us feel like imposters? I mean, honestly, come on, look around. Do you really even have to ask? The creative competition has never been this steep, and it just seems to be getting rapidly more steep by the second. It's like a... Treadmill with a stuck incline button, and pretty soon it feels like you're trying to run up a wall. So, what do you do? You push harder, you try to make stuff better, faster, stronger, but no matter how hard you push, there just always seems to be someone showing up and outdoing you, creatively speaking. You know, I've struggled personally with my identity as a creator for as long as I can remember, all the way back into first grade, honestly. I remember those days. I was the artsy kid in class, and uh, man, on every creative assignment, I got one of those sweet retro stickers that teachers used to put on there for like exemplary work. You know, the super job or well done. And I remember feeling like, man, I know who I am. I'm the artsy kid. And I think that's the last time that I felt certain of pretty much anything. Because there I was, living the creative dream, and then guess who shows up? Justin. Yeah, that's right. It's just Justin. Oh, you don't know Justin? No, not Justin Timberlake. I didn't go to school with him in Memphis, I believe he's from. No, this this is a different Justin, but you know this Justin. This Justin draws a Chicago Bulls logo in seconds perfectly and even adds a little hoop nose ring to, you know, just up the cool points. Man, it was the 90s. You couldn't compete with that. And uh, by the way, the Chicago Bulls logo doesn't have a hoop nose ring uh i know that you think it does but it actually doesn't that's just the mandala effect uh, uh your brain reverse engineering this thing and um guess who created that mandala effect none other than justin that's just the kind of cultural shockwaves this artist is responsible for this guy this guy showed up and all of a sudden this is the artsy kid and In class, and I just didn't even know who I was anymore. Now, luckily, we moved to a different state when I went to middle school, far away from artsy Justin. And when I went to art class, stoked to finally reclaim my throne as the art kid, guess what? You're never going to believe this. Guess who was there? No, it wasn't Justin. It was three Justins. Just Justin, Justin, Justin. These inhumanely talented artists followed me everywhere I went. And I remember in high school, just kind of like longing to go to college where it would be just all creative. I knew I was going to go for design or illustration or something like that. I'd be in a creative program and, you know, I could finally escape that. But guess what? You probably already know. I went to school for design and illustration and turns out the whole freaking student body is just justins it's just justin now that i'm a pro i'm a professional artist i've shown all them justins wrong right wrong cuz i whip out my phone and uh trying to just get a little reprieve from the imposter syndrome and and start doing the mind numbing scroll through instagram and you're like oh a good start a nice little cute dog Ah, that's giving me some little dopamine hit that I need. And no, oh, look, another creative superstar. It's just Justin. And another. It's just, and another. Justin. It's just Justin. And it's another. Justin. It's just Justin. It's just Justin. Hold on a second. This is different. What's this? Who made this one? Let me click through and see who this artist even is. Oh, right. Of course. It's just... Oh, you don't know? Sure you do. It's just Justin in binary. Yeah, that's right. AI Justin, and there's no competing with this guy. No amount of effort will ever steal your confidence when comparing yourself to the AI Art artmageddon that is on its way. You don't stand a chance against AI Justin. There's no outcreating this guy. You're not gonna make stuff harder, harder better, better, faster, Stronger than AI, Justin. You've been replaced. Hold on. Have I been replaced by an AI podcast host? No. But hold on a second. I actually think that there is some hope within all of this (laughs) rapid change. I want to share something that has really helped my creative confidence lately and it's this Kanye West's massive dip in streaming numbers. Okay that doesn't make sense but I I promise if you stick around it will and if you are struggling to find any grounding or to stabilize your creative confidence in the rapidly changing times that we're living through. Stay tuned because I want to share how building your creative confidence, not on working harder, better, faster, and stronger, or anything that you can do for that matter is the answer. But rather, for me, the game changer is building your creative confidence on who you are. I will give you a hint. You're not a creator. You're not the art kid. That's not who you are. You are something so much more than that. Let's go. Hey, real quick, before we get into the thick of this episode, I just want to let you know we still have some 2023 calendars. They are currently 30% off in our online shop. Go to creativepeptalk.etsy.com. They're still good all year round. If you haven't got your calendar for uh, 2023 and you want to stay pepped up with a new creative pep talk message each and every month go check it out. It helps support the show and uh, I'm really proud of this thing. So uh, check it out, creativepeptalk.etsy.com. Chapter one, build your creative confidence on who you are. Like I said, the number one thing that's given me a boost in my creative confidence and been kind of a psychological salve for my perpetual imposter syndrome as of late has been Kanye West's streaming numbers recently taking a beating. Now, if you don't know, or you're a robot listening 200 years in the future, let me save you a micro nano second of a Google search and just clue you in that lately rapper producer Kanye West has been doing a kind of, you know, public death spiral nose dive, uh, out in the media saying absolutely repulsive anti-Semitic things and all kinds of other unhinged junk. And, um, You know, first of all, regardless of who the person is, I want to just say that I take no pleasure in watching someone publicly unravel like this. You know, it's just kind of painful to watch, especially while they're in the public eye and then even more so when they are an artist. You know, artists are in my opinion, they, they they mostly seem to be pretty sensitive souls. They have a sensitivity that gives them this kind of artistic temperament and the gauntlet of fame seems to be kind of a torture chamber specially designed to break these sorts of sensitive artist types. Now, there's probably a lesson in their on its own, but that's not the one that we're exploring today. Like I said, I hate seeing what's happening to this man that clearly needs help. And it's a tragedy to see a creator hurting like this. And at the same time, it's even more of an injustice uh, how he has hurt people. So... Why is it that his streams taking a massive hit because of the things that he's saying, why does that give me some kind of hope as a creator in our modern times? I'll explain that in just a second, but to do so we're going to have to take a bit of a wild ride to get there. So I promise no matter how tangential this next bit is going to feel, it is going to all come back to that if you just, Trust me and go along for the ride. All right, let's zoom out of our current precarious moment that we're finding ourselves in and let's zoom into a little escape. Let's zoom into a simpler time. Ah, yes, 2007, the year of Pirates of the Caribbean 3 and the art world being turned upside down because Radiohead let you pay whatever you want for their album. The controversies. It was, a, it was a different time. It was a simpler time. Now, 2007, let's talk about a blockbuster smash of that year, Michael Bay's Transformers. I'm sure you've heard of it, but do you know Michael Bay? Sure you do. Google him. Big man, big head. If you in that Google image search, you probably see him sat next to his two big, huge Mastiff dogs Big movies, big explosions. You show me pictures of big guy, Michael Bay and his big movies and say, this guy made that movie. And I'll be like, yeah, that makes sense. This made that. It totally adds up. Like show me his explosive bad boys with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. Bad boys, bad boys. What what you gonna do? (laughs) What you gonna do? (laughs) And the Rock. Lad, well, the rock is cooking. Not that rock. Mr. Director, you have a very serious problem. Yeah, that rock. And you're definitely not going to want to close your eyes for this next one either. And I don't wanna miss definitely. Makes sense that this big guy makes meteor-sized box office smash hits like Armageddon. Massive Michael Bay, that's the kind of guy who makes those movies. The connection between the artist and the art makes total sense. Now, before you go thinking that I'm saying only large mammals can make massive movies, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not... Some kind of simple-minded, inhumane, toxic, masculine guy saying that there'd be something wrong if a man of smaller stature made these big movies and, you know, suggest that he must be overcompensating for something. I'm not saying that at all. Actually, on the contrary, I would say that, sure, just like any red-blooded American, I like when the art and the artist match up like Big Michael Bay and his big, huge, explosive movies. But also, I'm not just an American. I'm also an artist. And you know that there is nothing that us artsy-fartsy types like more than a good mismatch. Come on. If a small guy made big movies like that, oh, man, we would be loving that contrast. You know, it just gives us an excuse to whip out words like juxtaposition. Oh yes, the juxtaposition of that mismatch was quite choice. There's nothing finer in art circles than an uh, an opportunity to throw out the word juxtaposition. In fact, maybe today, like Pee Wee's Playhouse, today our word is going to be juxtaposition. Yeah! Now, while the mainstream needs all the pieces to add up nicely in a nice matching package, as an artiste, I love a tasteful mismatch as much as anybody else. Take indie art rockers, The Flaming Lips. Like, I am endlessly fascinated by The Flaming Lips and their frontman, Wayne Coyne. Why? Why? No, it's not just the Technicolor psychedelic menagerie of trippy and strangely soothing blips and boops of their music, or even that they do these crazy out of this world circus tit kind of rock shows from another dimension. It's not just that. It's that when you lean into the lyrics or you listen to coin in interviews, you know, talking about himself and the music and, and what it, what's it all about, you start realizing that all this psychedelia is coming from someone who's mostly been sober the whole time the band has been in existence. And then you hear that this psychonaut kind of shaman is pretty much a staunch atheist. And mismatches like that, we don't reject them. We lean in. Like artists know that these mismatches make us lean in and ask why, like what is going on here? It's just even more interesting when it doesn't add up. Or you take someone like Robert Smith, uh, the front man from The Cure, and you take one look at this goth looking chap and you're like, okay, I'm ready to cry, except they start playing and all of a sudden they're, they're playing close to me and you're dancing. And you're like, well, okay, why is this guy making me dance with this dancey rock music? And he starts spewing out emo poetry from those black painted lips. And now you're dancing and you're crying and you're like, what is going on? That, my friends, I think is art. Like that is the mismatch that uh, art that's juxtaposition, baby. Okay. So great, Andy. Thanks for the uh, art lesson. Wow, you really made a valid point. We love art uh, and artists that match, and we love when they mismatch. Boom. We love pretty much both options, every option there is. Wow, very insightful. Thanks for creating this podcast. No, that's not how it goes. Yes, we love the match. We love the mismatch, but it doesn't mean we love all possible options in how the art relates to the artists. Uh, There are, of course, other scenarios. Let's look at two more artists side by side and compare how the art versus the artist can go wrong in so many ways or how it can mismatch in not interesting ways but disturbing ones. Let's go back even further to a simpler time than 2007 Let's go to 1994. So in 1994, there was probably a moment when there were fresh reruns of Cosby Show being played. Maybe the first time they were ever a rerun. It ended in 1992. So there was probably times where you could have been either sat at home watching reruns of the Cosby Show and seeing Bill Cosby spewing off poignant moral imperatives to his beloved daughter, uh, you know, maybe even on the ethics of dating and how to do that well. And somewhere in that same world at that same moment in 1994, you could have been watching Trent Reznor, with greased down, jet black hair, decked out in leather, playing live on stage as the front man of uh, Nine Inch Nails, creepily whisper singing, I will make you hurt. (laughs) Like that could have happened, that you could have been in either of those spots. Now, if you've kept up at all with what the creator Bill Cosby has admitted to in court in terms of abuse, let alone what he's been accused of by countless women, you probably had a similar reaction to that scene that I just described from 1994 that I did. You probably recoiled a bit inside at the relationship of that artist to their art, right? Right? And I I don't mean the creeper on stage whispering, he will make you hurt. But I'm talking about the inauthentic relationship between the artist Cosby and the art that he made on The Cosby Show. You can't show me this man and show me that art and expect me to buy it. And yet, before you start thinking or wondering if I'm saying that you need to be somehow a saint in order to be an artist. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that to me, the relationship between the art and the artist matters, but you don't have to be a saint. I mean, when I think about it, I think like Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, like if he was actually found out to be a serial killer, I'm not even sure that would affect his streams very much. I mean, come on, there he is up there, loudly whispering. Yeah, that's right. Loud whisper. Another juxtaposition. He's loudly, creepily whispering it up there from on stage that he will make you hurt. And in a way, you'd be like, yeah, makes sense. It all adds up. Now, I'm exaggerating to make a point, but I do think there is some truth in that. Now, before we move on, let me just, Kick it in reverse for just a second. Back to Michael Bay for just one second. I want to address one other thing of something that just doesn't add up for me while I have this microphone and um, and, and address something with Michael Bay. Back to 2007. Yeah, that's right. Back to 2007's smash hit Transformers. Man, I remember it like it was yesterday. Sitting at the cinema Snarfing down popcorn, Pff, poor slob, never knew it was about to hit him. His whole childhood dreams were about to crumble. As I'm sat there, ready, about to watch Transformers do their thing out in the real world, on the big screen. And man, I just freaking loved the Transformers cartoon, and the Transformers toys. I just could not have been more excited. But oh no, my childhood dreams were crushed. Yeah, that's right. This isn't uh, a Michael Bay love letter. Uh, Mr. Bay, I have a giant bone to pick with you. A bone big enough to satisfy both of your huge Mastiff dogs. And it's this. I was so excited to see those cars change into robots. And uh, when that first one started to transform, I thought, man, here it is. This is the best part. It's good. Here, here it comes. But what did I see? I saw a car, and then I saw some breakneck, twirly Jim Carrey-in-the-mask, Tasmanian devil whirlwind of CGI crap. And then ta-da, big giant alien robot. Oh, I was ruined. Why? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's because the way that the car turns into the robot is the point of the freaking movie. It's not about the cars and it's not about the robots. The movie is called Transformers. It's how they transform. It's the whole thing. If you get that part wrong, if you phone that part in, you've missed the whole freaking point of what makes that property so interesting or at least what made it so interesting to me as a kid. You know, the movie is called Transformers. It's about how I relate to how this car relates to the robot. It's how they relate to each other that I relate to. In the cartoon or the toys... Unlike the movie, it was this unimaginable thing that would happen where they would transform before your eyes in a way that was both surprising and made total sense. You could see where each wheel and bumper added together and transformed into this totally new thing. Like the magic was how they authentically folded themselves into this new creation, each piece of themselves miraculously becoming something new and unexpected. That was the magic of it. You can't show me this car and then a gulf of computer-generated BS in that robot and think I'm going to buy it. No, I'm calling Bay-S on the whole dang thing. Oh, did you hear about the, there's a new Transformers Beast Wars movie. Are you excited about that? Well, who's directing? Is it Michael Bay-S himself? Because if it is, I'm out. All right, I'm clearly just joking around. I'm not going to have a... Tr- truly human, authentic relationship with a robot, no matter how hard that CGI goes. And neither are you. And that is exactly why I'm not that worried about the oncoming AI art Armageddon. Because as epic as it might be, epic enough to be directed by Michael Bayes himself, I am not worried about it because ultimately it's not even about the artist's relationship to the work that matters for me. The work is the relationship that I have with the artist, And when I put that AI art prompt in and the computer does its swirly-whirly CGI BS magic and then spits back art at me, it doesn't matter how hard it goes, how much better it gets, how much faster it can create, or how technically strong that work is, the art will never do the trick for me because it's not about how good the art is. It's about how well it connects me to another human. And this is why Kanye's streaming numbers, taking a hit kind of gives me hope because at the very same moment, our culture is worried that a robot is going to end art as we know it and take our jobs Kanye's streaming numbers tells us that we're having a terribly difficult time relating to art that's made by an inhumane creator. hope from that because it tells me that art as human to human connection is ultimately what it's all about. That if you say that this made that and it doesn't add up to a human authentically connecting to another human, I'm going to call BS on the whole dang thing because I'm not going to have an authentic relationship to a robot. Because if we're having a hard time connecting with art made by a human that seems a bit inhumane, then AI Justin, I'm sorry to say it, buddy, you don't stand a chance. And that's why my creative confidence needs to come from somewhere deeper than how strong my art is because awful, horrible people can make more technically incredible art than I ever will. And now even robots can make unbelievably technically strong creative work. But if you will do the work of authentically folding yourself into the creative work that you make to connect as a human to other humans, you have something to be confident in that they can never have. And it's not what you can do. It's who you are and who are you on the deepest level. You're not a creator. You're not a creative. You're not a producer of creative content or or anything. Uh, You're not even an artist on the deepest level. On the deepest level, you're a human. And when it comes to other humans that are looking to connect through the power of art and creativity, that matters. And I'm no fortune teller, but I think it always will. And so if we go back to our modern times and we look at it in real time with someone like Kanye West uh, and ask, will he ever recover? I don't know. Uh, But I'm pretty sure that the only chance he has of making a hit that tops the charts higher than his biggest hit of all time stronger, it won't be because he went harder, better or faster. The only chance that he has to reclaim himself and his place as an artist is if he can somehow reclaim his humanity. And I think that the same is true for all of us as creators in this modern era. Quick shout out to our sponsors, Font Self. If you have ever wanted to make a font, but you thought, you know, you maybe you checked out some software and it just seemed extremely complicated and time-consuming or maybe a, a design boffin in your life, whether it was a, a professor or just a friend made you intimidated by the whole thing as a, as a very serious matter. Uh, I want to encourage you to try Font Self because I tried the, um, the in-app version that, works with adobe illustrator and i made a font for use for creative pep talk related stuff in like less than 20 minutes start to finish and it was incredibly intuitive and easy Um, i remember you know 15 years ago trying to make a font and just like losing my mind and this app uh was genuinely fantastic but they also have an app on the ipad that makes it really really easy to make your own font right now it's uh free to try it's just 10 bucks um to own no subscription just a one-time fee go check it out just search it in the app store on your ipad and uh it'll come up or click the link in the show notes of this episode massive thanks to font self um i think you're making some great stuff Chapter two, quit trying to predict what will change. As I've been exploring and trying to find firmer foundations to build my own creative confidence on and escape the modern day onslaught of imposter syndrome that just is freshly streamed into my pocket at a never-ending rate, what has been the most powerful antidote to date comes from a kind of unlikely source. It's a bit ironic to me that one of the most comforting ideas that's helped me through all this creative turmoil lately uh, about the future and what it holds comes from a futurist like Jeff Bezos. I know. He's a big, bad billionaire, and I'm not denying that at all, but I am also just an illustrator with very little expertise on finance or how a society should organize itself economically. I mean, the best economic ideas I have have yet to really evolve past my economic policy that I was given in preschool, which is essentially, it's good to share. That I do think <laughs> that's definitely true, but I'm not here to have a hot take on Amazon or Jeff Bezos. That's not really what I'm here to do, but I'm merely crediting the source of an idea that has been very powerful for me recently. Now, again, not a Bezos fanboy, but I do think that if there's one person that knows a thing or two about how to stay steady within a rapidly violently evolving landscape or marketplace, I'd say it's probably someone who has sailed out past the dot-com bubble and through the unwieldy world of internet commerce over the past 20 years. How did Amazon continue to grow through such rapid changes when it's just completely impossible to predict how things in the world are going to change or how they could have never predicted the way that things would change over the past couple decades. It's impossible. You can't predict the way that things are going to change. And that's why they famously don't try to. So within that company, Bezos is famous for saying that they will not try and predict how things will change at all. It's a game that you can't win. Instead, what they do is try and predict what is likely not to change. And they focus all of their energy and they build their business and their growth on those things. And so in lots of ways, Amazon has clearly changed over the years, a lot since they were just a a place where they bought books. But at its core... The business is still kind of the same. They focus on cheap prices and super convenient, super fast delivery. They focus on all of their efforts on those things because no matter how the marketplace changes, people will always want the cheapest price and the fastest, most convenient delivery. And that is why they invest in things like drone delivery, not because it's the future or that's how things are gonna change, but because it banks everything on what's likely not to change about people and therefore their business. At the end of this episode, I'm gonna share where I heard this anecdote. It came from an incredible book about uh, podcasting called Make Noise by Eric Newsom. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in the credits. Um, but for now here's my suggestion whether or not you are part of the Van Bezos voice, or if you despise the man this tactic of banking on what's likely not to change will powerfully help you dismantle the system or mantle the system with your creative work whatever whatever your target is the tactic is is a good one here's why yes A.I. Justins will at the very least play some role in some of the art in the media that you consume in the future. That would be my guess. But like I said, I, I, I'm i not a fortune teller. I can't see the future. I don't really know. But if I had to guess, I'd say they probably are going to play a role. I don't think there's any change in this, changing that at this point. Um, And how that is going to change everything, it's impossible to predict. But a prediction of what's likely to not change, what's likely to be the same about that future art is the same about the art that was on the cave walls thousands of years ago. And in simpler times like 1994 or even 2007, art is for human connection. Therefore, yes, yes, Building your practice and confidence in who you are as a human seems like the most solid foundation, but I think it's also a good bet to build your art on what makes art connect with other humans, and that means making art with real substance. So this episode is part four and the final part of our Creative Mastery series, For the past few episodes of this show, we have been exploring what it means to make creative work that is more masterful. Creative work that goes harder, that's better than your old work. And sure, maybe you're even making it faster and more efficiently. We've talked about skill, strategy, and style And all that will make your work so much stronger if you level up those areas. But in my experience, and from what I can gather from the creative journeys of my creative heroes, is that none of that stuff is enough without the last piece. I really think that this piece of substance is the inflection point of so many creative journeys. And so what is substance? Substance is how you fold pieces of yourself into your creations just as authentically as the 80s Transformer toys did. And just as Frida Kahlo did. And, and Andy Warhol did. And, and while we're at it, how Van Gogh did maybe a little bit too far in terms of taking literal pieces of himself off and folding them into the process um you know when he cut off his ear and all that i think that was the guy i'm not an art historian um but i truly believe that every masterpiece contains a piece of its master so rather than spend all your energy spinning your wheels creatively stuck in the game of perpetually trying to out Skill and strategize and stylize your work past Justin and AI Justin and all the rest. Why not focus some of that energy on how to inject more substance into the work you're making by learning how to inject more of yourself into the work? Chapter three, your weekly creative call to adventure. This week, it is become British realty. That's right, realty. No, the secret to escaping the AI art artmageddon isn't becoming or pulling a Meghan Markle. You heard right. I'm not talking about British royalty. I'm talking British realty as in realtors and real estate. Let me explain what I mean by that. Okay, so. We live in a time where the art and the artist has never been more connected. Some say it's a little bit too connected in terms of like the artist and the artist as influencer, like we're seeing a time when the image that seems to matter the most in a painter's career is how good you look in the image of the photo of you standing in front of the canvas that you're painting and here's kind of my take on that if you and your quotes about your work are more famous than the work itself you're not an artist you're an influencer and that's right I'm talking to you Andy Warhol I'm talking to you Pablo Picasso and Mark Twain and Frida Kahlo and Giorgio O'Keefe Come on, you know, these artists' pithy quotes take up more space on the modern Hobby Lobby coffee mug, you know, shelf space than the actual art does. All of these breakthrough artists have ideas and quotes and isms and perspectives that have rivaled or outdone their creative work that they created. Does that mean that their influence was more outlasting than their art? I don't know. But what I do believe is who they were as people and the ideas behind why they made what they did were inseparable and an important piece of their work. And it became a big part of why it had the effect on people that it had. And I don't think you could disconnect those things. And I think that's always been true. And so are you an artist? Are you an influencer? Are you, you know, which is right, which is wrong, were the old times better? I, you know, I just throw all that stuff in the trash. The The point I'm trying to make is how do you fold yourself into the work that you make and give it that level of substance that people can latch onto and sink their teeth into and connect to as humans? How do you do this? I say you got to run a British version of an open house for your art practice. In my mind, Polly Pockets, those Polly Pocket toys are the kind of transformers of the real estate world. You know, it looks like a little perfect plastic plastic, seashell on the outside, but you open it up and boom, you see someone's actually living on the inside of this thing. Got little house in it. Come on. And a uh, good art is the same as a polypocket. pocket underneath the layers of every great painting is a living, breathing human. Just imagined scratching a painting off. There's a guy under there, help him. He can't breathe under all that. It's toxic, but that's not what I mean at all. Their ideas about the work uh, and and who they are as people—it's part of what has made that work come to life. So, like these famous historic art influencers. Share your ideas about a piece of work. That's your call to adventure today. Run an open house about your work. This idea was inspired by the host of the incredible podcast and Netflix series, Song Exploder, uh, Rushi Keshe Hirwe's TED Talk. And in that talk, he talks about how art is like a house that an artist builds. But most of the time, the artist is kind of just stuck in the backyard, quietly, having to silently watch people move in through the house and just hope that they get it and figure it out and fall in love with it. But in the show, Song Exploder, the musicians get to guide the audience through the work in real time. And it adds a whole new layer to the work that you might have never even heard before. And in this talk he actually plays one of his own songs that features him humming. And on the first listen, that's just what it sounds like a a song with a guy humming, but then he explodes his own song and uh, he walks you through the music construction that he built. And he explains that the song is actually all about his mother and that the humming is a kind of homage to the way that she used to hum while she was um, in the house. And when, you know, the second time you hear the song, I actually welled up with tears kind of having that context. And, and, If you think about it, this isn't an uncommon experience. It's not just this TED Talk. Like, think about all the songs that didn't make sense to you until you saw them play live or until you saw the human in the music video and the whole vibe and the thing that they were kind of trying to do visually. Like, there's a lot of times where you need a little extra context for something to click and make sense. And we live in a time where we feel it's unfair that you have to get in front of people or in front of a camera to represent your work. But I don't actually feel like that's anything new. Like designers have always had to get in front of the the boardroom conference room and sell the work to the client. Musicians have always had to perform their tunes in front of people. Illustrators have, you know, they used to have to lug these giant portfolios around the city and sell their work to the art directors face to face and um, and make that work make sense to that person. You know, I think it's in one way or another always been about people connecting to people. You know, even in the movie business now, like, yeah, sure, like the artist, the director, the actor doesn't have to get up in front of the audience and explain it to them and, and make it make sense and show the connection b- between the person and the work, but that person that sold that movie to the producers, to the people that invested in that project. They had to do that at some point in the process. So what do you do? I think you got to become like British realty. And so when I heard this TED talk, it reminded me of how uh, recently talking to my British in-laws about selling our house, they were telling us about how different things are done in the UK in terms of the UK real estate sector, And the biggest difference is how in the US it's customary in my experience for the realtor to show the buyer the house and how often the buyer and the seller never have a connection. They never meet each other. Um, But in the UK, it's commonplace for the seller to show their house to potential buyers. And yeah, it sounds awkward. It sounds as awkward as You know, I used to feel back in the day when I would do craft shows, selling my screen prints and and my art to people like face to face, it was awkward and painful sometimes, but it also had its advantages. And I think especially for the the buyer, you get to understand that house on a different level. You get to understand that art. You can suss out like, what is this thing all about before you purchase and kind of, you know, co-sign whatever this is. Because that's what it is. When people put your art up in their house, they're kind of co-signing what you're all about and what this means. And they don't want to be tricked. The same is true for art as it is for buying a house. So last year, I made a piece of work for the podcast that I really, really loved. I was really proud of it. It had two, it was it was a monster with two heads that was, and they were fighting each other. And the lettering said, quit fighting yourself. And I was really proud of it because I felt like the symbol and the archetype of the two-headed monster kind of perfectly captures how we all are, in a way, two-headed monsters with many sides of ourselves fighting within ourselves, sabotaging ourselves from the inside. And when I posted the piece, it did fine, but the performance didn't really match up with how excited I was about the image. And so it was a little bit of a letdown. And so then recently in a talk because I still believe in this image, I'm still it's still one of my favorites. I uh, I explained the piece as part of the presentation of the thing I was talking about and how for me it represents what I aim to do as an illustrator, which isn't just to draw pictures but to write with pictures. And how in terms of storytelling I was trying to do what author the, the author of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was doing which was create an illustration of how we have two very different selves vying for control within our psyche and how our only chance for progress is to learn how to get them to make peace with each other. And so after that talk, explaining this illustration that, you know, is a personal favorite of mine, one guy in the audience in the Q&A got, kind of emotional, and asked if that piece would be available as a print. And in that moment, I didn't need a robot algorithm to connect with that piece and tell me it was worthwhile and show it to all my followers. That human connection will be all I ever need to feel like that piece was a success. And that's why, to me, sometimes you need to become British realty and go ahead and drive it home. That's your creative call to adventure today is take a piece of work that you made that you love. It feels like an authentic folding up of your truest self and go you know, walk in front of your audience and walk them through the construction of that piece of work. Point out every piece that you labored over and and why you did that and talk about the memories you had of making it and what is it about that piece that you love so much? Try to articulate it. You know, this could be an Instagram reel, it could be a TikTok, it could be an IG live, it could be in your monthly coffee meetup in real life or in a blog post. It doesn't matter. But go through the process of trying to get to the bottom of what is it about this piece that I'm so proud of and try to explain it to somebody else. Because in my experience, not only has this led to bigger connections with the audience for that piece of work but it's also helped me understand why I connected so much with those pieces in the first place. And it helps me more purposefully fold myself into future pieces as well. All right, that's it for our creative mastery series. I hope it brought some pep to your step, especially early in the new year where we all need a, creative boost to get past uh, the holiday lull um, and back into a new year, new goals, fresh stuff, leveling up the creativity. Uh, We're going to be doing uh, a new series that's really all about folding yourself authentically into your creative work. It's all about substance. It's going to be about you finding and telling your creative story in your work in one way or another. And, uh, I'm really, really excited about it. So I hope that this episode hits you, uh, and cause we're going to take this concept even further. So stay tuned for that. Um, a couple notes about this episode. I mentioned the book, make noise by Eric Newsom. Uh, that's where all the Amazon stuff came from. That's a guy who worked at NPR in podcasting and then worked at Wondery, which is, um, uh, Owned by Amazon and where he got some of those anecdotes great book if you are a podcaster highly recommend it Um, tons of really really good stuff in there also recommend uh, Rushikesh Hirway's podcast Song Exploder and the Netflix series and the Ted Talk there's actually an incredible episode that um, of of the Netflix series that inspired this where they go into the Nine Inch Nails song Closer and it's it's really good and really powerful. They also talk about the Johnny Cash version of the song. Um, uh, So i check out that. Last but not least, uh, we want to thank the patrons of this show um, at patreon.com. Thank you for your contribution. You make making this show possible. Uh, If you want to support the show, but you can't currently afford to back it financially on patreon uh one thing that really really helps is if a show hits you hard if you would just you know share that with some friends whether it's through social media or just actually a direct message to a friend that you think maybe needs this particular um brand of pep today we really really appreciate it and uh it really makes a difference i think That's the main way that this show has grown is just um, people sharing it with their friends and and other creators. So thank you so much for doing that. And uh, thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme song and our soundtrack. Thanks to Connor Jones of Pending Beautiful for editing this show so beautifully. And to, of course, Katie Chandler, Ryan Appleton, and um, Sophie Miller for you know personal and podcasting assistance of all kinds and until we speak again stay pepped up